this time. Lord Jesus, I just thank you for the opportunity to finally get to teach this course. It's been in the works for so long. And I pray for um, clearness of, of thought and for um, this message to come through. And I pray, Lord, that we can um, use this material so that more people ultimately um, can know about you and there can be more rejoicing in heaven over people getting saved. Um, and that you'll be, uh, more people will be reconciled to their maker. In Jesus' name I pray this. Amen. Well, it's school season, which means a lot of people are getting off of school buses, um, and some are confronting brand new school year. And 12 years ago, a teenager stepped off the bus going to, for the first time, high school. And a bit of background, this teenager used to be going to a good, safe, Christian private school that was actually situated underneath his church. He went to his church school all week long. The weekend he went to church. His friends were Christians. His subculture was Christian. Everybody, his music was Christian. The books he read were Christian. But he felt a call to go as a missionary to his high school. And so one day he got on a bus, on a different bus, and he got, well, actually it was the same bus, but he got off at a different place. And he had a Bible just a little bit smaller than this. Do you remember the cargo, pa cargo pants? They used to be really cool. Big Bible like that in his pocket, just so that nobody would miss it. And uh, he went as a missionary to his high school. And there were a lot of highs and lows for the next three years as he, myself, as you can probably guess, um, tried to be a missionary on campus uh, and um, led uh, a few people to the Lord. Um, some of them stuck with it. One, one did, one didn't. Um, and a lot of highs, a lot of lows, a lot of failures, a lot of successes. But one kind of recurring theme throughout that whole period was, I don't have a sweet clue what I'm doing. I have no clue what I'm doing. And the more, the closer that I got to having an opportunity, a relationship where people were actually, you know, ready to talk was the worst times almost. The, the, the passing moments in the hall, I could handle those like, hey, you're a Christian. Yeah, I'm a Christian. That's what I believe. That, that's fine. But when people were like, honestly, like, I'm curious, speak to me, I'd be like, I don't know what to say. And the issue... At first, I felt like I, had, I knew what to say. I'd just read the Bible to them. But the more I understood their culture and where they were actually at, the more I realized when I say this, they hear this. And the gap between where I am in my Christian church, Christian um, school, Christian um, music, you know, the whole moody, like um, just the subculture that we had in the 90s, Trying to get over to where they are, it's like cross, it is cross-cultural ministry. And I have no foundation, no background, and nobody else in my culture, in my church, was doing this. And I was like, how do I do this? Um, and so a lot of it I felt like, um, not failure, but I sure wish I had better tools. And so this course is what I wish I had known 12 years ago um, when I went onto my campus and tried to be a missionary. Uh, this is apologetics, and this and apologetics is being ready with an answer uh, when somebody asks you questions about your faith. So with that in mind, let's jump into the syllabus. Syllabus should be the first thing you bump into as you open up your binder. Just leave that there. And... Um, because I've taken a lot of courses. By the way, I have a bachelor's and master's in theology, just in case anybody's wondering if I'm qualified to teach. Um, some people would say that I am. Um, 
And uh, my, my syllabus is my contract with you. It will not change. This is what's expected of you, okay? I have had frustrations with teachers that get halfway through the year and they change the syllabus. Um, what, we, what we discussed today, we'll have questions and, and you guys can understand it well and this is, this is what's expected of you. So the big idea of the syllabus, it's all based on first, first Peter 3.15, not all based, not only based, but primarily uh, the, the go-to passage for apologetics is first Peter 3.15. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you yet with gentleness and reverence. So be ready when somebody asks you questions. That's what this course is about. As well, the greatest commandment is this. You shall love the Lord your God with what? Your heart, your soul, and your mind. And often we forget about the mind. Yes. We love the Lord our God with our lives and our hearts, not our minds necessarily. Um, first, 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5 For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So God has given us tools. The most important one is right up here. As we love the Lord our God with all our mind, God ha we have a weapon to attack and to, to dismantle fortresses and things raised up against the knowledge of Christ. And, you know, Satan has people captive. And people I was meeting in high school, they were so trapped by media, by, um, by worldview, by culture. Like, like, how do I get in there to, to rescue this person? As, as, it, um, as it in First Peter talking about rescuing people like firebrands pulled out of the fire. How do I even get close to the fire <laughs> to grab somebody. I mean, they're, they're so stuck. We have tools to do that. All right, so course description. In obedience to 1 Peter 3.15, we're going to equip you guys to give answers to your faith. So apologetics is a lot of things, as we're going to talk about soon, and the definition of what apologetics is. And we can go a lot of different directions with it. But basically, I'm going to hand you the ability to answer people. Basic, over coffee, when you have those moments where people trust you, when people are asking questions, you're going to have some sort of answer and resources to, to pass them to if you, don't, if, if you don't have the full answer. Um, our objectives for this course, the cognitive, what you're going to know, is you're going to know most of the con contemporary objections to Christianity. This part is going to be difficult because um, a lot of times the way that we cope as Christians is kind of to shut ourselves off from some of the objections towards Christianity. Or we just kind of dismiss them as, ah, oh, that's just liberalism, that's just secularism. We're going to open up the floodgates in this class, in these 12 weeks, and look at what's actually out there. And so that is going to be hard, and you need to be prepared for that, and you need to um, find your anchor point in Christ. And don't ever be ashamed to just say, I know that Jesus exists, and I... I know I have a relationship with him in my heart. And whatever's going on in my mind and these questions I don't have, I know Jesus exists. Don't ever feel ashamed of falling back on that because that is proof. You have access to proof that Jesus exists because he speaks with you. He, he relates to you. That is proof. Um, I have a podcast on my podcast blog called um, The Holy Spirit versus Science or Science versus the Holy Spirit. So you can listen to that if you'd like to um, have kind of a a theological backing for that, but just the bit, bottom line, you can find all my resources at josiahmeyer.com, uh, but the podcast is no longer be children, uh, dot, 
um, no longer be children, you can find that in the iTunes store. So we're going to talk about most of the objections to Christianity. And we're going to give some reasoned defenses, some good answers to these objections. Uh, and we're going to give you further resources for finding more answers to these questions. So in your binder here, um, excuse me here. Um, there's several sections in here, and I meant to make it a bit more organized than it ended up being. Um, but I got you some stickies so that you can organize it. Um, but towards the end, you have a stapled section right at, the end, right at the back here. And if you move backwards from that, oh, I'm sorry, forget that, forget that. We're starting at the beginning. Are you changing the syllabus? No. <laughs> We're trying to understand the syllabus. Um, so on page nine, do you guys have page numbers? Yeah. Excellent. You printed the, the version with page numbers. We were a little bit last minute on some things. Uh, page 8 and 9 is an annotated bibliography. So here's some books that are good resources with a short description of why they're good and they're kind of some go-to resources. So, um, and speaking of changing the syllabus, we might add to that throughout the year. And I might give you a second page or a third page to the annotated bibliography. If there's new subjects that come up and I'm like, oh, we need to add that book. So that'll be a resource. You might want to put a sticky tab on that. Five years from now, you'll be like, oh yeah, I need to go back to that resource. Just pass those sticky tabs around when you're done using it. Okay, so that's what you're going to know. You're going to know the objections, some responses, and some resources to go to. Okay? What do I want you to feel throughout this course? Um, I want you to see the importance and beauty of apologetics as a way of loving God with all our mind. And everybody's wired differently. And some people really, you know, connect with God with their heart. And some people really connect with God, you know, through service with their hands. And some people are just really, you know, eggheads like me. And, and if I've got something intellectual like this, that's how I love God. I would, um, I, I discipline myself to read the Bible. But when I feel joy in the Holy Spirit, it's listening to apologetics podcasts. Um, I could do that all day long for my devotions, but um, it, it's probably better to, to also um, read the Bible. But um, I want you to, I think that there will be some of you especially that will really connect with loving God with your whole mind through this course. Um, as well as I want you to have an increased uh, confidence in God, in scriptures, and um, to be more engaged, uh, more equipped to engage with culture. Behavioral, um, we're going to learn the discipline, as I already briefly mentioned, about sanctifying Christ as Lord in our hearts. No matter what happens, Christ is Lord of our mind, he's Lord of our lives, he's Lord of our hearts. And this is going to be our, our focusing point, our, our reorientation moment throughout this course. Um, so you're going to become prepared to answer questions, um, and you're going to... Be prepared to live in a way that your life is an apologetic, your life is an explanation for uh, the Christian faith. And um, yeah, that's what you're going to do. That's kind of a repeat three and four. Okay, so that's the big picture of what this course is all about. Uh, let's talk about the course requirements. Um, it's going to be a little bit uh, heavy in the reading aspect. I want you to read a textbook 
and I want you to read all of the course notes. And so far I'm writing about 20 pages of course notes per course. Um, so there you go. I want you to read them ahead of time and the last page of the notes is going to be some reflection questions and I want you to fill out those questions. Uh, I want you to come to, to class except for today obviously. Uh, but going forward I want you to have read the notes beforehand. Uh, so we're, we're printing off next week's notes hopefully as we speak and we'll have those before you guys leave and you guys can read them ahead of time. As well, uh, we have a book on order called um, On Guard, by Defending Your Faith with Reason and Precision by William Lane Craig. Um, and you have the first chapter photocopied for you. It's the last thing in your binder. So you can read the first chapter for next week. Oh, we were gonna read two chapters though for next week. Well, you're already behind. How, how does that feel? We might have to change the reading requirements just because I was a little bit behind ordering the book. We planned to have a stack of books back there and we just didn't get to it. But, okay, so you're going to read the textbook. You're going to read the class notes and please have them done before class every day and that's 36% of your grade. Um, attendance and participation, please show up. Um, please talk while you're here. Um, Brief comment on the format. You guys are probably already familiar with this, but uh, we're recording this. So the first hour is going to be a little bit chuk, 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 and then we're going to have a half hour of discussion afterwards. So that's kind of how it works. Save your questions more for the end. Clarification questions, quick, uh, raise your hand. Hey, I don't understand this. That's great throughout. If you're like, well, I got this rabbit trail here that I'd like to talk about. Just say that for the end. That'll be great for later on. The major assignment. Um, Skip ahead to page five. Oh, that didn't come out very well. Um, actually, skip to page seven here. This is what I want you to do, and I'm sorry it didn't print very well. <laughs> um, so you're going to answer, pose and answer a question, and I'm going to read what I wrote if I can. So. The question that I've got, okay, put, your, put the date and your name and the subject at the top. That's more for my benefit, um, just to know where you're at and, and when you did it. And the question I pose is, if God is good, why does evil exist? And the answer I said is, um, yeah, I can't read that at all. I'm sorry. Um, so I answered the question in a few lines here, something about um, God had to create free will in order for love to exist or something like that. And then um, my support, I had some Bible verses here and some logical uh, reasons for that. And then books and resources, I mentioned a few books that I had found helpful to me. So you're going to do 20 of these throughout the course of this, throughout the, the time of this uh, course. Uh, as well, um, on the back, you're going to have additional notes. So you can go as deep into this as you want. Um, this is mostly for your benefit. For in six years when somebody asks you a question and you're like, oh, I, in that apologetics class, we talked about this. You're going to go back to your book. It's going to have a sticky tab on it for the question marks, for the question parts here. And you're going to look it up, look through your subjects. Oh, which subject was that? Oh, yeah, that was on, on uh, morality. And in morality, you'll have four or five and you'll find the one on the problem of pain. And you'll have an answer because we can't keep everything in our heads. We're not, we're not geniuses. Um, and at least most of us aren't, maybe some, I don't know, is there a genius here? I can't keep this sort of stuff in my head, I have to write good notes. Um, you are able, you are allowed to copy from books. Uh, if William Lane Craig lays out an answer, you can write the answer here. In fact, 
Everything on this page can be somebody else's thoughts. I don't care. You just have to footnote it. Like, don't pretend it's your thoughts when it's not. Um, but the point of this is for you to have a resource and for me to see that you went and found a resource for each question, okay? So don't worry about, you know, being original. It's not about being original. It's about having a good answer. Uh, but don't copy each other, okay? Copy, you know, somebody that's published a book. Otherwise, I'll end up with, well, yeah, anyway, don't copy each other. That just makes sense. Um, bonus points are available. If you're the type of person that, that's a keener and wants to get bonus points, um, you're required to hand in 20. You can hand in up to 30, and I'll give you uh, an extra point up to 10 of the extra ones that you hand in if you want to do extra uh, question and answer. And I'll, I'm going to um, mark them in the sense that if you hand something in, it's full marks. Um, but I'm going to um, kind of evaluate it and be like, this makes sense. You might want to look at this. Uh, if I was a skeptic, I might object this. You know, maybe be answer ready for that. You'll find probably that you'll write one, and then you'll be like, hmm, this kind of leads into another one. And then you'll pose another question, and you know, you, that might lead into another question, or that might end it there. So I'm going to um, help to, to mark and help you think through some things. Um, but the, the purpose isn't like to get higher marks or anything. It's just for you to understand the material better. Okay, are there any questions on the, um, the syllabus before we move on? I, I literally have been working on this stuff since high school, and uh, I can't tell you, like, this is kind of like one of these moments in life. It's like, it's finally here! Um, so, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, if there's more questions about the syllabus, you guys can ask them uh, later. Um, let's move on to the first bit of the course notes, the course material here. Let's talk about what apologetics actually is. So getting back to 1 Peter 3.15, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Let's read that in context. Let's go to 1 Peter 3.15, because this is really... This is really central to apologetics. Who wants to read this for us? Um, can you back up and figure out where the context starts here while I find it? Yeah, start there. Yeah. No, actually, that starts with a but. Go back where the, where the idea starts. Go for it. Yeah, keep going. So what do you observe about the big picture of this passage? Are 
they're, they're experiencing pushback. Why are they experiencing pushback? They're suffering for doing good. They're not flying under the radar. These aren't undercover Christians. People know whether they have a big Bible in their cargo pockets or whatever. People know these are Christians, and that's part of why they're getting pushback. And what's the big picture response for, um, for this, for, for receiving pushback to our faith? Yeah. Yeah. Keep a good conscience. Yeah. You, you actually have to not have done what they're accusing you of. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So what some apologists do, and I've been taking a lot of apologetics courses online and podcasts to kind of prepare for this, um, we sometimes grab just this verse, the be ready with an answer, and we, we pull that out, and we got all our egghead ideas, and, and we're ready with an answer. But this is talking about a life of A, being integrated into society as a missionary, either on your workplace or you know, in your high school or, or college or whatever, you're out there, you have non-Christian friends. And you're, you're good enough friends or, or you're, you're working shoulder to shoulder enough that they're like, hey, stupid Christian. And, and, and there's kind of these jabs coming your way. And, and maybe you're singled out for ridicule, ridicule or for pranks because you're a Christian or whatever. Um, this, is, this is the context it's talking about, and it's saying have a good life, a good testimony before them, so that when people accuse you of something, over the long run, people are going to look back and say, you know, we used to make fun of him, but really, you know, he was a pretty cool guy. So that's, that's the important thing, okay? That's, that's really, really central. But in the middle of that, and kind of as we move in, because the, the, the testimony is on either side of this verse, if you look in verse 14 and in verse 16, either side of this verse is talking about how you live and your life. Um, and actually, if we move out from there, um, verse 14 and verse 16 are talking about, um, or ver verse 17 are talking about suffering. So it kind of moves inwards from suffering, how you live, and in the middle is the answer, you know, being ready with an answer. Um, I'm tempted to say this is a Hebrew chiasm, but I... <laughs> Don't know. It kind of looks like that. This is a Hebrew way of thinking where you, you kind of move from the, the out to the outward to the middle. But um, the point I want you to get is that it's not just about having the answers. It's about living the life and then talking the talk. Um, not being an annoying Christian that's a hypocrite and, but also has all the answers, but uh, living an authentic life. Once we have the authentic life, people actually ask us questions and they're actually open when they ask us questions. We need to be ready with an answer. And this word uh, that's translated, um, always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you for an account for the hope. Be ready with, to make a defense is um, the word in the Greek, apologia. Apologia, yes. Um, which is what we get the word apologetics from. And this is from the uh, law uh, system in the, like the Greek law system, which was very similar to ours because ours is based on theirs, um, where, you know, somebody would, the, the 
prosecution would bring an accusation and the defense would give an apologetic. They would say, no, I wasn't there. I didn't do it. I'm innocent. But they wouldn't just say, well, look, I mean, let's all be friends here and let me go. They would have reasons for why I should be let off from this crime, why I should not go to jail for the rest of my life. Um, so the, the word apologia is the idea of having a good answer that's well thought through, that's prepared ahead of time, that you're all ready for something. The idea of having an apologetic means you need to have some time beforehand spent in preparation. If nobody would show up in court if they're on trial for murder and just go, you know, fly by the seat of their pants or, or just wing it, you would prepare. You would be running through in your mind what they're likely going to say and what I would say in, re in response. You're going to run through the situations and the likely scenarios and you're going to be ready. So li likewise, apologetics is about being ready with an answer when people ask us for, um, about the hope that is in us. So that's definition number one. Apologetics is being ready with an answer when skeptics ask. Apologetics is using reason, debates, and arguments to convince somebody of the truth of Christianity. Um, so it's a lot of people get saved because um, something cool happens. Uh, God meets them like he met Saul on the road to, to Damascus. And boom, they're like, God is real. I got to figure out what this is all about. Um, and that's awesome when that happens. When just God just does our work for us. And he's like, boom, here's a new Christian. I saved him for you. And you're like, yeah, sweet. But often it takes more work than that. Um, and uh, Paul, as soon as he got saved... Uh, in Acts 6, uh, 9 to 10. Let's turn there quickly and briefly. As soon as he got saved, it was like the next day, it clicked for him. And he went to the synagogues and started debating with other... Oh, no. That's Stephen. Acts 9. That's where I meant to go. Acts 9, 21 to 22. So right after... After Saul had his Damascus Road experience, and then we start referring to him as Paul, um, he went to the synagogues and he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He's the Son of God. And those hearing him continued to be amazed or um, uh, confounded and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who were called uh, on by this name and who's come here for the purpose of bringing them before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength, not physical strength, of course, intellectual strength. He got better arguments. He figured out what he believed in a better way. He kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. So here, have you ever been convinced against your will of something? You like, you really want to believe something, but somebody comes with an argument and you're like, shucks. <laughs> I really wanted to believe that. <laughs> and, you know, you just completely proved it wrong, you know. Yeah. We've all had that experience. C.S. Lewis, who was kind of my, my mentor, he was the guy in high school that I read that it was like, ah, apologetics. Um, he said when he got, when he moved from atheism to theism, he realized there was a God. He didn't get saved at this point, but he realized there must be a God. He said he was, must have been the most 
um, grumpy and unhappy theist in all of England. It was like, oh, I guess there must be a God. And, and there's, there's a huge need for that. And we need to be prepared to give good enough reasons so that we can force people against their will sometimes to intellectually believe. We can't change their heart. We can't change their lives. We can't change what they do. But we can affect their minds. And this, when you prove something to that extent, it has two possible outcomes. Either people will say, oh, you're right, um, and, and change, or else they will realize internally that you're right, but they won't want to change, and they'll attack. And that's what happened to Paul. He had to flee the city. And a few chapters earlier, uh, Stephen did the same thing, and they stoned him because they couldn't cope with his, his arguments. And so they went on the offensive. It's called an ad hominem attack against the man. Um, so be prepared for that. When, when people start attacking you, you've won. As it, counterintuitive as that is, um, if you're having a civil discussion and then people all of a sudden are just kind of like, well, oh yeah, well, what about this, what about this? And they just get angry. and It's likely you've won the argument and they can't cope with it. And so at that point, it's just like, all right, we'll just leave it here. And you just think about what I said. Um, but that is, that's kind of where we're aiming, is, is to push people either to the decision of changing their lives or else rejecting you or, or dropping the conversation. Um, the third definition of apologetics, definition three, is apologetics is explaining Christianity to a foreign culture using their words, their concepts, and their sources to explain biblical concepts. Where's my book still? Um, I'm up here. So this is what C.S. Lewis does in his very important book, uh, Mere Christianity. Who here has read Mere Christianity? You only read half of it. Okay. Okay. Um, I'd highly recommend you to read this book. I would have assigned it for you, except that it doesn't cover as many topics as On Guard. Um, but what C.S. Lewis does for um, his context, he was writing in the 30s and 40s, I believe, in, or 50s in England, um, and people were, radi- were quickly drifting away from Christianity to the point where they didn't really read the Bible, understand the Bible, that he was kind of in the same culture as context as we are. And he doesn't quote a single Bible verse in this whole book, as far as I know. Um, he refers, he says sometimes, the Bible says something like this, or Christian thinkers have often said this, but he uses ideas from culture to explain Christianity, or he uses language from, that anybody can understand. He doesn't just say, well, the Bible says this, therefore, the Bible says this, therefore, because he's not talking to Christians. He's talking to non-Christians. Um, and obviously, alarm bells might be going off in your head right away and thinking, well, this could get kind of dangerous here. We're going to talk about that danger in a second, but this the, the picture you have on the bottom here, oh, does this work too? I draw pictures. Apologetics done right is like if we have the world here and we have the gospel here, it's building a bridge so that we can take people over to the gospel. It's not just standing over here with a gap in between and saying, hey, jump. And the person's like, uh, no. <laughs> um, you build a bridge. 
and you explain in a, in a way that makes sense to them so that they can come over the bridge and understand what you're talking about. So the reason I get this, or, or the, the biblical warrant for this is in Acts 17. Um, and I'm seeing the time going rapidly by. And so I'm going to, I would love to just sit on this passage and, and talk about it for an hour, preach on it for an hour. Um, but instead, I'm just going to kind of blah, tell you <laughs> what I saw in this passage uh, so that we can move on to, um, to some, some other important things. So Paul is in Athens by himself, Athens being the center of, um, of Greek thought at the time. And as he's waiting for his, his friends to show up, he's walking through the marketplace and he sees a bunch of altars and idols all over the place. And he, he's disturbed by this, he's bothered by this. Thank you, but thank you. Um, and he's, he's thinking about this and reflecting on it. And as he's speaking in the synagogues, he gets invited to speak at the local university, basically, or the debaters club. And he stands up and he presents a sermon, basically. But you'll notice, if you look at this sermon, he doesn't quote a single Bible passage. Where does he start? He starts with something he saw in the marketplace. He says, you have all these altars, and you have one of them that's an altar to an unnamed God. Because they were, and he said, you guys are so religious, you've got an altar to a God that you don't even know yet in case you find him one day and you don't want him to be mad at you. Well, let me preach to you, well, let me proclaim to you this God that you don't know. It's not re really why they had the altar there, but it kind of like makes it feel like he's filling a need for them. It's like you have a need, you don't know who this God is, let me tell you about this God. And it's also kind of like the society has a built-in back door. It's like, if there's any new gods, knock on this door. <laughs> You're the unknown god. And so he's like, well, here's the unknown god. Boom, here it is. And, and they're like, okay, I know. first step of the bridge, the unknown god. And as he goes on, he talks about the Judeo-Christian god, and he starts to expound on, on some shared concepts that they have between Greek thought and, and Judeo-Christian thought. And at one point, he quotes a poet. So he, he grabs a cultural reference, kind of like a pop song. Uh, but not just like Beyonce, he, he grabbed like Bob Dylan reference or something like that, right? Um, so like a, a strong or a Beatles reference or something. He, he grabbed a strong pop cultural reference for, you know, saying that we are all God's children and, and that in some way, you know, God loves us and we have this relationship with him. And then he moves all the way over to talking about Jesus r rose from the dead and we can be saved through him. And at that point, at the final step, people scoffed and said, nah, this is nonsense. And I have it later in your notes here, um, but I, I need to talk about the dangers of um, apologetics done wrong. This is much later in the notes. Um, I don't even know what page number it is. But there's a, there's a picture like this. I'll draw it for you. So this is apologetics done right. Apologetics done wrong is when we take the the Bible, and we we build it on the foundation of worldly thinking. And this has happened all throughout the history of the church. In fact, it has been the apologists who have been responsible for most of the cults and false religions in, in church history. That's the sad reality of it. Um, apologetics is dangerous. We're going to talk about the dangers of apologetics really soon. But 
if you're building this, this bridge, so the first step is to understand culture well enough to build a bridge and to really understand culture, which is why apologists and missionaries are some of the experts in world cultures. Um, the stereotype is that missionaries are um, like anti-culture or like they erase culture. Sometimes they do when they just import a culture from somebody somewhere else. But usually, it's I think that missions is the greatest um, sign of respect we can give to a culture because we study the culture and we redeem the culture. Um, it's because when we build this bridge, the, the Greek never stops being Greek. The Athenian never stops being Athenian. He just becomes a Christian Athenian. Um, or, or, or whatever that may be. Um, you know, my heritage, part of my heritage is uh, from Ireland. Rich Christian heritage from uh, St. Patrick, who did a good job of missions, who in, in, in doc, um, enculturated the, the gospel into Ireland. But when we don't take that final step, Paul, I'm sure, as, as he was getting ready to talk about Jesus' resurrection from the, from the dead, probably something inside of him kind of, he knew this is going to be the, the tough one to swallow. This is the tough pill to swallow. And he bit the bullet and he said it. Jesus rose from the dead and that's the center of our faith. And most people scoffed and turned away. We need to be prepared to take that last step to be offensive because the gospel will always be offensive in no matter what culture we're in. And if we don't take that false step, that last step, we're going to end up creating a new religion for every culture that we encounter. Is that clear? That is, the, there is always an offense of the gospel and the, the gospel will always be foolishness to the in, informed, intelligent people in a culture. Um, but, we don't need to start here. Paul didn't stand up and say, I believe in the resurrection of the dead. Everybody would have been like, why did you invite him? <laughs> and turned away. What we see is that a few people turned and followed uh, Paul after his presentation because they had followed him on this bridge and they got to the end they were like, I'm all the way over here. It's just a little jump now. Sure, let's hop over. And, and pr probably some people later on, as they reflected on it, thought about how they could move over that bridge. So apologetics is like building a bridge from culture over to the Bible. Apologetics really isn't that crazy or weird. It's missions, isn't it? This is what we do as missionaries. I've already mentioned that term a few times. Isn't it amazing how when we get prepared to be a missionary to go speak to the Hutu tribe over in Africa, or to an unreached people group over in Papua New Guinea, we get all this culture training and we understand how to do culture, cultural analysis and, and understand not just their language but their culture so that when you preach the gospel to them, you're, you're not speaking over their head but you're speaking to them. And yet when we go across the street, we feel like, well, this is the same culture. I can just speak to them you know, straight the way I would speak to somebody in the church. But it's not the same culture. Uh, our culture, our subculture within the church is often radically different from that outside the church. And so we need to do this hard work of missions to figure out where people are at and how to bridge the gap between them and us. Um, definition number four. Apologetics is just good theology. Sometimes apologetics comes down to nothing more than just Understanding what you believe in a good and systematic way. And we're going to 
talk more about that later, but I won't expound too much on that because that's pretty straightforward. Apologetics is recasting the myths and cultural stories by which a culture defines itself. Apologetics is recasting the myths and cultural stories by which a culture defines itself. So we believe that we're, we're good and enlightened people. We don't, we don't have myths anymore. But we do have myths in the sense that we have cultural stories that define us as a people. Um, here in Quebec, for example, all the license plates say, je me souviens. What does that mean? I remember. What, what does Quebec remember? What the English did. They remembered that they lost the battle on the Plains of Abraham, that France released the, the, the French people over to the English, and that they are a conquered people, but one day will rise again, or, or whatever. How, you know, there's different ways of understanding that, but I remember. This is part of my heritage. It's part of my story. I still remember learning French here, um, and uh, I was sitting down with somebody from our church, and, and they were explaining French to me, or, or like trying to teach me, and they told me this story. And she said, on uh, cédé, we were released, we were seated. And there was pain in her voice. Yeah. And that story, if you don't understand that story, good luck going out here and trying to do, or, or I mean, not good luck, but you're walking in a minefield, you know, talking about, hey, I'm, I'm from Ontario. I'm here to share the Protestant gospel. <laughs> um, so... There's cultural stories that, that define, and you know, the rejection of the Catholic Church is another huge story that, that Quebecers define themselves with. Uh, south of the border, I know we have some Americans here. I mean, the story of freedom, independence, the frontier. These are all stories that define America. And, and what, what does it mean to be an American? Of course, there's different ways that people understand and interpret it. Um, World War II, lest we forget. The lessons of World War II, although they're defined for every person, the lessons are very much a part of the culture that we're in. Very much. If you start debating ethics or politics, Hitler's going to come up pretty quick. <laughs> Far too quick. Um, but these stories define us, define who we are. And at times, these stories can conflict with the gospel message. And so if you flip the page, we have a picture here of of uh, a fortress and 1st Corinthians uh, 10 3 to 5 says uh, though we walk in the flesh we do not war according to the flesh for the weapons of a warfare are not of the flesh but divinely powerful for destruction of fortresses and destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of, of God and we're taking every thought captive so there's there's fortresses and there's lofty high places and I would say these are the cultural stories that we have as a culture that define us. And some of them are flat out opposed to Christianity. Um, such as, how many of you have heard, evolution disproves Christianity? Um, the Crusades prove that religion just causes violence and Christianity is a violent religion. Um, the Da Vinci Code has, has disproven Christianity. Uh -huh. It's the third or fourth most published book in the history of nonfiction, The Da Vinci Code. It's, it's crazy. It's like right, right uh, on, there's like um, uh, Chronicles of Narnia, Lord of the Rings, and then The Da Vinci Code. You're like, what's that? What's up with that? Uh, and then you have New Atheism. Who has heard of Richard Dawkins? It's become a household name, The God Delusion. And Simple Ignorance. 
people often just don't know what we're talking about. I was in high school and uh, overheard a conversation. Uh, this girl was making fun of her boyfriend because they were walking in front of a local Christian bookstore done by our church and owned by somebody in our church. And uh, there was an Easter thing. And there was a big sign that says, He is risen. And her boyfriend said, Who is risen? Satan? <laughs> and uh, her, you know, she, she was making fun of him like, Come on, it's Jesus that's risen. Don't you know that? He didn't know that. He didn't have, who's risen? You know, and you know, you got the Batman rising, you know, Dark Star rising. Like, I don't know, maybe it's Satan, maybe it's the Antichrist, I don't know. A lot of people, like, they're not meaning to be anti-Christian. They just don't, don't know. Um, I picked up a hitchhiker a few years ago. And um, anyways, that's another story. But it, it's amazing how even people that haven't studied, don't have, you know, a doctorate in apologetics, or... In, in biology or, or anything like that, they'll come up with these things. They're, they're, they're rooted in culture. And so we need to know how to deal with them and get past them so that we can uh, share the gospel. Definition six, apologetics is war. And as such, um, we, need to be, we need to be ready for spiritual warfare when we do apologetics, especially in the, in the realm of our mind. And that's why I talked at the beginning about um, sanctifying Christ as Lord in your heart and always returning to that. There's a reason that God put that into 1 Peter 3.15. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. Be prepared for that. Be prepared to take this last step. You will be a fool. You're going to start off with their respect. And you're going to be quoting Bono and you're going to be quoting U2 or or, um, the Beatles and they're going to be like, oh, you understand us. Or you're going to be Quoting Fred Pellerin or Cœur uh, de Pirate, if you're doing Quebec evangelism, and then you're going to end up with organized religion, and they're going to be like, organized religion, ah. Um, and that's really hard, but be prepared uh, with the humility, uh, and and be prepared to sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts to say, you know, it's not about popularity, it's about uh, Jesus being Lord, and I want Him to be Lord of your heart as well. Um, Let's talk about some objections that people have to... I have a note here. I'm supposed to, this, when I get to this section, it's supposed to be 9 o'clock. <laughs> I'm a little bit behind. <laughs> we did start um, about 7... Se- 5 minutes? I think it was 7. Yeah, eight, 7 to 8. <laughs> okay. Um, believe it or not... Um, I went through Bible college and seminary without a single course on apologetics. That's how much it's a priority in Christian circles. But my Bible college, I think they have an apologetics course now. I'm not sure. I just, I'm not sure why I didn't get it. My seminary actually taught that apologetics is wrong. And in order for me to develop a good apologetic, I had to undo some of the nonsense that they had taught me so that I could learn apologetics so that I could teach it. Um, and, and there's reasons that people have for this. We're not going to cover all these, but um, I have three reasons that, uh, or four here, that, um, ap- that people don't like apologetics. For, for one thing, apologetics makes people smug and arrogant. And I have a picture here of uh, somebody that you'll meet online. If you ever do apologetics online, I'm an atheist, debate me. Well, there's Christians like that too, you know. Yeah. And, and you've met them. And you're like, you know, I really wish you weren't on my team. 
I'm glad you're a Christian, but I wish you weren't representing me. Um, 1 Peter 3.15 says, Same for Christ in your, as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to give an answer to anybody that asks, but with gentleness and respect, people. Gentleness and respect. And where does this come from? It comes from having Christ as Lord in your heart. And having that all settled, you know, having your, your identity in Christ, having your daddy issues all worked out, not having anything to prove, not being like, if I lose an argument, like nobody's going to like me and I'm going to have to go home and eat ice cream or whatever your, your personal baggage is. If you, have, if you have your confidence in Christ, you can lose an argument and be like, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know what to say about that. And, and people will respect you for that when, when you have the humility to say, I don't know, or just, you know, not, not to be, not to put your, your personal identity in having to win arguments. And I've, I've been there. I've been that guy. And so I can say, you know, don't do that. Don't do that. It's bad. First um, Timothy 3, 3 and Titus 1, 7, we talk often about the qualifications of being an elder in the church. Something we often don't mention is that they're not supposed to be argumentative. I don't think I've ever heard that in a sermon anywhere. But in both of the places where there's qualifications for an elder, not argumentative. It's in the Bible. So be ready with an answer, but don't have a chip on your shoulder. Don't enter, you know, like, where's the lo local atheist club? I want to go, go fight, you know? Um, there, there's a difference between knowing what you believe and being argumentative. And um, so as much as, um, yeah, so don't, don't do that. Don't do that. The second objection that people have is that apologetics is not spiritual enough. And I think that we've addressed that already with um, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, that we need to love the Lord our God with our heart, but also with our mind. Um, it's true that you can retreat. Anything that you study can be an escape from God. And you can cut off the, the connection. This, I don't mean to be gender stereotype, but it might be more of a male thing than a, guy, than a girl thing. Just kind of becoming hyper-rational. Girls can do it too, but it, it, it seems to be more of an issue for guys. And just be like, this is what I believe. This is what I know. I don't want to go to my heart because there's stuff down there I don't know what to do with. And apologetics can be an excuse to do that, so don't do that. Uh, don't be, um, don't retreat from your emotions into an intellectual pursuit of anything. Uh, always keep connected to Jesus. Um, objection number three we've already talked about, um, talking about um, the offense of the gospel and how we always need to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts. Why do we need apologetics? I'm going to skip over that section. You can read it later. Uh, you're all here. You believe that we need apologetics or else you wouldn't be here. Um, we need apologetics because Christianity is under attack. We're living on a mission field. And because we need to reach the next generation. And uh, so, you know, read that. I'm sure that you, I, I assume that most of you agree. Um, I do want to talk about how to do apologetics, and this was supposed to be about a 10-minute discussion on, uh, on conversation. Yeah, we have seven minutes. Hey, we're back on time. I think I can do this in seven minutes. Okay. Um, so when we're doing a, apologetics, what we're doing is uh, debate. 
And we shouldn't think about that in terms of a conventional argument. When you write a paper, or when you write a book, or when you uh, present a case in court, um, you're presenting your, your argument. You're, you're arguing. But it's not just you know, emotions or, or my emotional strength versus yours. You're presenting your arguments, your, your rational presentation of, of the, your beliefs. Um, and there's certain rules that go with that. And I, in the next week, I'm going to uh, make you um, a list of logical fallacies and a brief definition of what logic is. Because there's people that study logic, they've been studying logic for like 3,000 years, and there's certain rules they've figured out, just basic common sense stuff about how you present an argument, and certain errors that people habitually make, kind of ruts that people fall into, like circular reasoning, uh, like an ad hominem attack. Instead of dealing with the argument, you attack the person. And there's just some basic stuff that people make mistakes often, and we'll talk about that next week. But this week, what I want to talk about is that there are two basic stances of, apologet of, of debate that work into two basic stances of apologetics. And the one is offense. Sorry, we could call it offense or positive is a, more of a neutral term. And the other is negative. So the negative has a shield, and the offense has a sword. I have a lovely picture in your notes here, but that's the basics of it. So if you, in any context, whether it's over coffee, over a beer, in court, whatever, if you make a statement, Pepsi is better than Coke, whatever the statement, you're on the offensive. You're stating a positive case, okay? The person that listens to you can either just say, okay, fine, I don't care. Or they can be like, they, they can enter into, into debate and dialogue with you and say, I don't agree with you. Okay, so this is the defensive or the negative case. Something very important to understand is that the person in the positive position, sorry, this is a little bit technical, but this is just, this is really important. The person in a positive position has the burden of proof has fallen on the shoulders and now he's sad because the burden of proof is heavy. Okay? I say Coke is better than Pepsi and you say why? And I'm like, uh, because the sugar content is slightly higher? I don't know. You have to give reasons or else you're just stating a personal opinion as though it's fact. And everybody thinks you're silly if you just state personal opinions like, like they're facts. You need to provide evidence to provide to, to prove your, your position when you're in the positive case. In the court setting, who provides, who bears the burden of proof if you're in court? No. The prosecution. You, I bet you had the right concepts to just switch the, the terminology. So Joe Blow is on trial over here. Joe Blow is on trial for murder, okay? He is what? Innocent until proven guilty. The prosecution comes in and says, you're guilty, here's my reasons why, boom, 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 boom. His role or his lawyer's role is to debunk their proofs. It is not to prove that this lawyer is a bad person. 
It's necessarily, that might be part of how they undermine it. But their sole purpose is to dismantle these arguments. Okay? They don't bear the burden of proof. They are completely in a defensive position. Okay? So this is important to know because in arguments, you can sometimes slide the burden of proof from one person to another. And if you don't watch it, if you're a really nice guy and you just wander around and, and people know what they're doing, you can end up with everybody dumping the burden of proof on you and being like, there's not enough years in my life to prove, you know, to get my way out of this. Um, somebody just uh, on Facebook this morning posted something about, and I don't want to get into the issue, um, but they said, I was just wondering why uh, people read this Bible verse this way. Couldn't we read it that way? And I, and so he's saying, why do you why do you read the Bible that way? And he's just putting it out there on Facebook. And I, it just he was trying to present a new way of reading the Bible, and I like the old way, so I would have borne the burden of proof. But instead of trying to prove it to him, I said, well, if you wanted to find an answer to that, you could just look at the original Hebrew and see whether the original Hebrew supports or uh, doesn't support your, your belief. He was posing a question, but really he was making a statement about what he believed. And so I was saying, look, you're in the positive position. You prove it. If you think that the Bible says something different than what you think, look at the Hebrew, look at, compare different texts, and prove it. And he didn't say anything after that because the burden of proof is hard. Um, but if I was naive and, you know, I could have said, well, the Hebrew says this and, and contemporary passages say this, and then he could have picked holes in it and said, well, that doesn't count because of this and that and the other. We could have had a debate where I'm sitting here holding the burden of proof, doing all the work, and he just sits back there and says, no, I don't like that argument. No, that doesn't really make sense to me. Here's this web page that says this, so there. Um, not to say that the negative position is always a weak position, okay? But the positive is work. The positive is hard work, the negative often is not hard work. So you need to know um, when you're bearing the burden of proof legitimately, and sometimes you have to. You know, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That is a huge statement. That is a huge burden of proof, but I'm prepared to bear it to a certain extent. The statement, all the religions in the world are wrong, that's a big burden of proof. You have to, I don't even know all the religions of the world, you know? Um, I've sometimes said in sermons, quoting Luther, that there's, um, okay, making a general statement about all the religions in the world, it's too big of a burden of proof. You're biting off more than you can chew. So you could just qualify that by saying all the religions of the world that I know of, or all the major religions of the world, um, so the other part of, of this burden of proof stuff is to understand you need to be very cautious about how much, how big of a pie you, you bite off, how much you, you, you say you're going to prove. Um, now what you believe personally is going to be different from what you present as an argument over coffee with a skeptic or, you know, on Facebook or whatever. Um, I believe that Christianity is the only true religion in the world. Um, whether I'm going to step out and say that, well, I would because Jesus has already said that he's the way, the truth, and life. So that, that proves it for me. Um, but whether you can make a general statement about all the religions in the world being this or all the religions in the world being that, 
Uh, somebody could say, well, do you know about you know, this and the, that minor religion over in the jungles of Papua New Guinea that hasn't been discovered yet, they don't agree with you. So be careful about biting off more than you can t chew and taking on too much of a burden of proof than is, is reasonable for you um, in your situation. It's always appropriate to say, this is my opinion, or as far as I know, um, this, is, this is true. So there is offensive and defensive apologetics. Um, I don't have page numbers, but if you look for the little guy that's fighting the world, and the world's fighting him. Um, I, got, uh, I got Hudson to reprint your guys' notes with page numbers, and I didn't get a version that has page numbers. So that's it doesn't have it either? All right. I failed. Um, yeah. So there's offensive apologetics. There's positive apologetics and negative apologetics, but usually in apologetics, we just talk about offensive and defensive apologetics because it's a little bit more user-friendly. Um, usually we're in defensive apologetics because it's easier to do and uh, because our culture is on the offense against us. So you have people like um, Richard Dawkins and he's now deceased, and I forget his name, Christopher Hitchens writing, Christopher Hitchens writes, um, God is not good, how religion poisons everything. And he's trying to prove that all religions in the world are bad, or the net impact of religion in the world is evil. Well, we can disprove that fairly easily uh, through various arguments. We can pick holes in that. Saying that Christianity is, is the best religion in the world, that's a positive argument that's harder to bear. Um, we're going to talk as well about the next class. It's going to be on worldview. And we're going to use um, Cornelius Van Til and Francis Schaeffer and give you a um, presuppositional um, view of Christianity that's going to explain Platonism, pre-modernity, modernity, and post-modernity in uh, hopefully the time allotted. And that is a positive claim. It's an audacious, huge claim that all the worldviews in the world are flawed except for Christianity. And I think Francis Schaeffer makes a good point. Um, but it is a heavy burden of proof to bear. And I, I think he does a good job. Um, creation science, as it's usually done, is offensive. And in that case, I think it would be better, and I would like to, us to switch over to a negative. Um, in the sense that most of the time, people are like, you know, the, the world was created 6,000 years ago, evolution is, is wrong, um, cosmology, everything you've, you believe about cosmology is wrong, these scientists are not, in, not research enough, they're, they're just influenced by their presuppositions, they're, they're liberals, whatever, and it's, it's all a positive offense against the world, and it, it's, it seems as though it's a really huge burden of proof to bear, and in my personal opinion, it's not always born well. So my perspective on that is to say, well, we'll get to that when we get to it, but I would, because I know that blood pressure will rise when I start to touch that, because it's a little bit of a sacred cow in our society, but I do think there's a way to, to be on the negative side of it and say, okay, if you think evolution is true, prove it to me. If you think that uh, the Big Bang is true, 
prove it to me. And let's look at the ideas of the Big Bang and see whether naturalism or theism is a better uh, worldview to uh, hold the, the idea of, of evolution and the Big Bang. So we'll get to that when we get to it. But uh, is this clear? Positive, negative, offense, defense? You guys are good with that? Um, there are five basic apologetical methods. Yeah. How are we doing for time? Let's just end it here, and we'll go to questions. End it as far as the, the recording is concerned. Um, yeah. What do you guys have for questions? Hit me. Really have to be talk about Frank <laughs> yeah, Francis. Frank is his son, who's a Christian atheist now. Yeah. But Francis Schaefer. did both, right? Because mm -hmm. he also said, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Mm -hmm. um, right. He also, you know, said, I and the Father are one, or he said, I am, which was a reference, mm -hmm. you know, and they knew what he was talking about. Um, in 1 Corinthians, somewhere like 3 or 4, it talks about um, our, our message being foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling stone to Jews, um, that um, Jews seek for a, a sign and Greeks seek for wisdom. Uh, and these are kind of the two categories of people. There's going to be people that accept scriptures as an authority, and these might be Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Jews, um, Catholics, Orthodox, um, Muslims. You know, to some extent, when we're having these discussions, the Bible is going to be authority. And so we need to know the Bible. We need to be well-versed in the Bible. Often Jehovah's Witnesses know all the, the all the Trinity passages a lot better than we do. Uh, and they can run circles around us. And we need to know, what the, we're going to have a, a class near the end on what the Trinity actually is. Um, because part of apologetics is explaining Christianity to people that, that accept the Bible or part of the Bible as an authority. But when, when people don't accept the Bible as an authority, we need another, we need to look at what their authority is and move from where they are over to where we are. And part of that is we need to establish the Bible as an authority. You know, as, as a pretty important part of the discussion as well, or an authority in some in some sense. Yeah. Um, in the in the Peter verses, and also when Paul is in Athens, it talks about Really? Right? And, uh, 
I missed that. That's Acts 17. Yes, please. I love verse 21. Yeah. The Athenians who stayed with Dividend used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It so describes our culture. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? <laughs> it says, yeah. yeah, they invited him back because they thought he was a man of noble character. Or something like it's in here, I can't find it. But uh, anyway, so. Apologetics, you're talking about like debating and, and that kind of thing, but uh, it's also behavior. Right? Yeah. Like, are we going to be talking about that as well, or, or are we more like. Um, it's mostly going to be intellectual. Okay. Um, pretty much what I've already said about your heart and your, and your life and your attitude is about all I'm going to say about that. Okay. Because I think that Hudson is going to do an excellent job in the other courses. Of presenting, you know, your lifestyle. Yeah, we're um, doing a book study on humility. <laughs> excellent. That that's yeah, actually that's a really good partner yeah. to this. That's a good compliment. I, I was just curious. Yeah. I felt I was following somebody else's syllabus outline when with this whole feeling, knowing thing, living, and I got I felt a little bit awkward when it got to um, behavioral do because it's like this is mostly a course about learning something, you know. Um, but I, you know, at least in the introduction, I wanted to say it's extremely important how you live yeah. and your attitude. Um, but mostly we're going to talk about demolishing strongholds and, and thinking clear thoughts. That would have been a really great objection. I'll add it to my notes for next time. Um, yeah, what about in a postmodern context? Does anybody even care about apologetics anymore? Um, I'm going to write the note here. Just let me uh, try and answer this here. This is very true. Um, but we shouldn't be discouraged. Um, my story that I'll talk a bit about next week is 
back in 2008, I became very interested in post-modernity and in what was called the Emergent Church at the time. Kind of um, bought the t-shirt and, and joined the club and <clears throat> started a blog and I was like, I'm Emergent and this is everything needs to change and, and you know, the, we need to get back to, you know, get rid of Plato and, and get married to Derrida and all this sort of stuff. Um, and at that time, I definitely would have said, you know, apologetics doesn't matter. Uh, it, it's all about your heart. It's about creating a better meta-narrative and a better, telling a better story. Um, I left that, and there, there's some principles that are really important there, about telling a better story and asking questions and things like that. But my personal experience has been that people actually are really interested in the questions and the answers. Um, especially when it comes... because. My feeling is that the reason people say it doesn't really matter is because they've already established in their mind that the Christianity is destroyed through evolution and people are, you know, these are just middle age or, or dark age thoughts and the Bible, you know, Jesus just became God at the Council of Nicaea and, and he didn't even claim to be God and, and, you know, religion just causes religious wars anyway, so let's just, you know, just kind of seek a, a, a general idea of God and not a particular idea of God. Um, my feeling is that when we, if we can tear down these strongholds, and, and not everybody wants their, their strongholds torn down, um, not everybody wants their questions answered, but if we can break through this, I, I feel like there is a hunger on the other side. Um, and, you know, at the campus where I am, I mean, I don't know if there's a more secular place to be doing apologetics uh, in North America anyways. Uh, and people are intensely interested about in, in who Jesus really was and, and whether the Bible is actually true. Um, it just depends on whether you have a hearing or not and whether they feel as though you're really engaging with the issues or whether you're just just regurgitate, re regurgitating you know, religious ideas that you got in church and Sunday school and you're just not, not doing critical thought. Um, I've actually come to believe that post-modernity, at least most of the ideas about what post-modernity is, is a myth. Post-modernity doesn't really exist. It's just modernity flipped on its it's a coin that's flipped over. It's the same thing. Because people are hyper-scientific about medicine, about history, about um, you know, how they examine and approach the natural world. It's not as though we've suddenly gone over to a system where we're non-scientific. It's just when it comes to religion and ethics that, that we're not you know, modern or, or, or organized. But that was always part of modernity. That was always part of, as we're going to talk about next week, that was ethics and religion were always part of modernity, something that couldn't be defined by science, and so it's your own personal opinion. So although there are certain parts of post-modernity that you know, definitely are a change, it, I think it comes more down to um, differences in technology and how people are interconnected and, and more open to other ideas. Um, but <clears throat> I certainly, um, I wouldn't want to just throw apologetics out and say apologetics isn't important for postmoderns. I have found postmoderns are more interested in apologetics than ever before. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, in a, in a way, because it's yeah. profoundly um, offensive thing to somebody with an idea about what you say doesn't matter, especially if they can see that you've engaged in mm -hmm. the topic. Um, 
And so it, it, when you say that it's just modernity flipped on its head, it, that may exactly be what it is. This is just my way of assaulting you in a different way. And yeah. I don't mean that in terms of I'm angry at anybody, but in terms of, of it's the ultimate form of assault, in a way, to refuse to engage. It's, 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 it's a... Dismissive. What would you do if a Muslim came and provided extremely awesome evidence? You couldn't answer any of his arguments. Completely proved that Islam is the way. But my my guess is that if if somebody came to me and I whoa like all these arguments and evidence, I might do something similar. Just kind of be like, I appreciate that, but I don't really agree. I'm gonna go over here now. Um, so, yeah, it, it can be a polite way of just saying, you know what, I'm not really interested right now, you know, because uh, the heart has reasons of which reason knows nothing, as Blaise Pascal said. We believe what we believe because we want to believe it, and uh, ultimately that's why it all comes down to your life. I mean, we, it's crazy, but the most important beliefs that we have, we usually choose them because we like the people that believe that already, or because it's comfortable in some way. And so if people don't like you and, and they don't think that they'd be comfortable as a Christian, then they might just not really be interested in hearing what you have to say. So. Were there other questions? You had a question? Some kind of question over here? Um, you know, when we about the conversation, it was about something in the course requirement. Yeah. Please. Um, we talk about, um, uh, talk about it exception. Yeah. No, it, it's not necessarily on a page. There's a talk about it section, which is the end of, of the notes that you got today. Um, this is to guide our discussion right now. If, there's, if nobody has any questions, we can do the talk about it section. Um, if you're reading it by yourself, I'm not going to mark this. Just whatever you write here, you know, just kind of the, after you've read everything, it's, it's possible just to read over quick and not really reflect on it. So when you get to the end, just kind of think about, okay, um, what did we, maybe, maybe anti-intellectual, does everybody know what anti-intellectualism is? Did I just pull out a big word on you guys? Sorry about that. Um, anti-intellectual, that's probably where your issue is, is I started with a big word that I didn't define. Um, which reminds me, I made you a glossary. Uh, if you found it, it's, it's way at the back, um, where I'm, I'm trying to explain what I mean when I use big words that you might not know. Um, I promise you I'm not doing it on purpose. Um, I'm trying my best to speak in, in everyday language because there's no need to use technical language for the most part. But every once in a while, there's a word that just says it, you know, and so that's why there's a glossary. And I, I would invite you to, because um, I do this by accident, you know, I've been in school for like 10 years or something. So um, tell me if there's a word like anti-intellectualism that you're like, I don't know what that means. Don't be ashamed. It's not... It's not, it's just technical language. You know, if I was teaching engineering, you'd be like, I don't know what that means. 
It's just technical language, and I want a, a good glossary, and I want to know to avoid these words. Um, so anti-intellectualism is just the attitude against uh, advanced education, against advanced reading, and against um, against being over overly intellectual. And actually, I do want to talk about this. Uh, but to answer your question, um, just read the question and just write something. That's that's what's expected for the talk about it section. Um, that's a good segue into a discussion I want to have. There's a, there's a number of questions here which are helpful, but this anti-intellectualism I think is a really important thing before we um, before we dive in to talking about big questions about worldview and philosophy and cosmology and biology and ethics, and we're going to be you know all over the map and and some fairly high-level stuff. Um, what sort of internal barriers have, do you have, perhaps, or have you experienced in the church against high-level academia or against high-level thought? Pastor. Pastor. The method of pastor's address to the audience. Yeah. Yeah. As if we can't understand any of Yeah. Speaking of using big words, you know, there's kind of been a seeker-sensitive movement started in the 90s about, like, you need to preach to the new people in your church and not use insider language. And part of that is kind of just dubbing everything down. And That's what we're encountering in the French culture. It's like now we don't talk in those terms anymore. We don't teach on yeah. them anymore. And it's, I find it's lost. And, and now uh, we're, we're, even the slang language is really, really bad in the French church mm. to the point where you, you don't want to put that online because, <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. it, it, I don't know, it's like uh, t-shirts are allowed now again in the church and it's like, oh, let's go the same way with the language. Not that I have anything against t-shirts. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't care, at least you showed up. Uh, but, I mean, I see the language, it's doing the same thing. It's like, you know, it, the bar is low, yeah. and it's and, and I find with that also the attitude in the church is low, and people are. I saw the reading, like the reading the Bible went with it. Mm. I don't know. It's my take on that. I saw there was fewer requirements. The bar went low and lower and lower. Sorry, Laura, and mm-hmm. and now it's like. Okay, no, that, that's not okay. You cannot yeah. live that way. You cannot open your Bible and the minute after lie to your spouse. Yeah. You open the book of truth. You cannot live a life like that. And it's like all the expectations now are so low that I've heard stuff in my church, for example, and, and I'm a pastor in that church, and I had to went to go to that person after and tell that person, this is wrong. You cannot say that from the pulpit. Hmm. He said, I sin all the time. I'm like, oh my goodness. I never thought in my lifetime I would hear that from the pulpit and from someone who has his credentials. Mm-hmm. And I, sorry. It's okay. I'll let you. Hudson just gave me the sign that okay. it's 10 o'clock. It's time to wrap up. Um, totally appreciate what you said. Um, that is, I think, a symptom of postmodern culture. Yeah. Whereas a few generations ago, okay now. you know, 
we we wanted complex intellectual thoughts about religion and now it's just like wishy-washy whatever you you feel um, I'm from a Mennonite background um, and in in some Mennonite backgrounds and some Baptist backgrounds they just really don't encourage seminary and, and higher studies because they've had a bad experience with liberalism or because you know people tend to lose their faith in, in seminary or in, high, in um, university um, some people feel like uh, if you study too much, you're cutting yourself off automatically from a relationship with God. Um, and I wanted to end with a quote uh, by B.B. Warfield. Some say, uh, why would I spend half an hour in study when I can spend half an hour on my knees? Why not rather spend half an hour in study on your knees? Mm -hmm. And I think that's um, what we need to do with this course. So uh, let's close our time in prayer, and then we're going to go off to the next thing. Thank you, Jesus, that um, you are truth, and that we don't need to sneak around in the shadows and hide from people that have objections. Mm -hmm. um, if we don't have answers, somebody else does. And uh, I thank you, Lord, that there's, you've raised up a generation of apologists and people that, that study this stuff and that write awesome books. And um, I just thank you that uh, this stuff is exciting, and it's fun, and it makes us feel more confident and ultimately gives us more joy in the Holy Spirit. And it opens us up to share our faith in a way that um, we can feel good about ourselves and our religion and we can invite people to a religion where they don't have to put their mind on the shelf when they come to church. In fact, they better bring their mind with them or else they'll be lost. Mm -hmm. And I just pray that uh, you would bring a new generation of people that um, are not ashamed to preach and not ashamed to teach, and not ashamed to read books, and push their people to read books, and learn big words, and, and um, get uh, good theology under our feet again. In Jesus' name I pray all these things. Amen. Amen.